Let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, thank You so much for such a beautiful day. Oh, Lord, and when it's so nice out like this, we have so many other things that we'd like to be doing, but I am just so excited that there are so many people that are here tonight. You have put it on everyone's heart to come back. And Lord, we want to dive deep into Your Word. We want to have a great understanding of this whole issue of the topic that we're talking about tonight. And Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. We are asking that You will guide our hearts and minds. We're asking that You give us wisdom. We are asking, Lord, that You would show us what You would have us do. And Lord, when we discover that, our prayer is that You'd give us the strength, the courage, the desire to do Your will. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, our topic tonight is the Antichrist's boldest move. And I thought that we would just go through a brief review of the things that we learned Friday night and Saturday night about the Antichrist. And so you will remember that we compared two prophecies, one in Daniel chapter 2 and one in Daniel chapter 7, and we saw that they were parallel prophecies and that in them that there were four uh, nations that would rule the world one right after the other. And we saw that they were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then when we got into Rome, we actually uh, went through that pan and zoom principle of Bible prophecy and we zoomed in on those feet and toes of Daniel chapter 2 and we saw that that was the ten divisions of Rome. And we saw that in Daniel chapter 7, where we saw that great and dreadful and terrible beast, that he also had ten horns. And those both uh, were symbolizing the divisions of Europe. And then when we got into that great and dreadful beast in those horns, we even went in a little bit further. And you'll remember what it said in Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. Daniel said, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. And so we learned some very important things about this Antichrist. The first thing that we saw is that he proceeds from Rome. And we know that because that little horn grew up out of the fourth beast, and we had identified that beast as Rome. And so the Antichrist has to proceed from Rome. And then we also saw that he has to rise to power shortly after 476 AD. And that was because that little horn came up among the ten, and the ten were the divisions of Rome into the divisions of Europe. And we saw from history that that began in 476 AD. And we actually saw that the last of those three Aryan tribes that was plucked out, three of the ten horns that were plucked out by the Antichrist, happened in 538 A.D. And so that was the beginning of the Antichrist's reign. And so uh, those were two very important things that we learned, both the place and the timing of the rise of the Antichrist. We saw that the place was Rome and we saw the timing was 538 A.D. And then we saw that the Antichrist was a strong political power because he was given authority over every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And if you have authority over nations, you have to be a strong political power, don't you? 
And then we saw that it was also a blaspheming power. And we looked at the definition of blasphemy in the Bible, and it was two things. One, claiming to have the power or the authority of God and claiming to be able to forgive sins. And so we saw that this power was in fact a blaspheming power. And then we saw that it was also a universal religious power. And that's because the verses that we looked at said that all of the world wandered after the beast, right? And all of the world worshipped the beast. And so this was a universal religious power. And then we also saw that the Antichrist is a persecuting power because he was giving authority to make war with the saints or to persecute the saints who are God's people. And then we also saw that this power would reign for a time, times, and a half a time, or 42 months, or 1,260 days. And we saw that all of those time periods were the exact same period of time. But what then we noticed there was that that a, a day equals a year in Bible prophecy. So it wasn't talking about 1,260 days. It was talking about 1,260 years. And so here we have a very visible, prominent religious system with political clout founded in Rome in the 6th century, a power that had both religious and civil sway for over 1,200 years with a man at its head who is worshipped and revered as God on earth. And of course, after looking at all of those, we saw that there's only one entity in the entire world that fits that description. And that is the Church of Rome, and mostly specifically, the papal power. And so we walked through that step by step. And if you missed out on that, you can get the notes on that from the uh, registration table or over here on the resource table, or you can also get the CDs that, that will talk about that. And so here we see that the Roman church essentially was not just a church during that period of time, but ultimately it had both political and religious power. And the church had rule over the army and over the government and ultimately punished people for being heretics. And we looked at the, that the uh, Catholic definition of heresy, didn't we? And their definition is someone who decides for themselves what to believe. And so that's why they punished people as heretics. Because if you didn't do what they said, then you were in fact a heretic. And in fact, during the Dark Ages, we saw that the estimate was that 50 million people gave their lives. And so we spent a, a little bit of time talking about that. And I wish that we had more time to talk about all of these things because there's so much more. And uh, we just barely scraped the surface. But I want to make sure that you understand that we're not talking about individual Roman Catholics. Because you'll remember that the Reformers were all Catholic themselves. And they loved their church. And they wanted to see their church change. They wanted to see the church reformed. But the church refused. And the more that they fought against the church... And then when the Bibles came out and they began to investigate the Bibles for themselves and they saw that the things that they were teaching and when they discovered that the church that they were fighting against was in fact the Antichrist, that really poured fuel on that Reformation moment, didn't it? And so 
we saw all of these things, but we also saw that in the end that there is going to be an image formed to that beast and we need to understand the facets of the beast. We also learned that he had this mysterious number 666 and you can get the notes on that or the CD as well. And then we saw that he received a deadly wound and we looked at that and if the papacy came into power in 538 A.D., and he ruled for 1,260 years, that would take us to 1798. And we saw, in fact, that something very significant happened in 1798, and the papacy received a wound. And that was when Berthier, Napoleon's general, came in and took the Pope captive. And essentially, their political power was over. But then we also saw that that deadly wound would be healed. And we saw that in 1929 that Mussolini made a a treaty between the city of the Vatican or Vatican City and Italy and temporal power or civil power was once again given to the papacy. It wasn't uh, the whole world like they had before, but that wound was beginning to be healed. And if you question at all whether or not the papacy is gaining in prominence, I want you to just remember something that's happened just within the last year. You'll remember that for the first time in American history, a seating pope went to our Congress and talked to them. First time in history, right? It's never happened before. And so we can see, even right now in our time, that the Pope is gaining in prominence. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but just in a couple of weeks, on October 31st, it is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. You aware of that? And I'm waiting to see what the Pope is going to do. Because there is this ecumenical movement where they are trying to bring all of the churches back under the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll just tell you this, the churches are changing. But the papacy does not. And we're going to see the same things happening in the future that happened in the Dark Ages. And so tonight, I want to give you another clue that we haven't talked about yet. I alluded to this in the last couple of nights, but we haven't gone into it. And so tonight, we're going to dive deep into this But I want to stop here, first of all, and I want to remind you that as we begin tonight, that the deceptions of the last day are going to be incredibly effective. The Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And so, refresh my memory, was it a small minority of people? Or was it a large majority who ignored the preaching of Noah and were swept away in the flood? A large majority, that's right. In fact, the devil always uses the weight of the majority to strengthen his deceptions. For instance, I suspect that from the clarity and the power of the preaching of Noah, that there were people who wanted to believe him and wanted to get on the boat. And you might ask yourself the question, then why didn't they? Well, because as they looked around at the majority, 
And they looked at the people who were included among the most intelligent of their day. And they couldn't understand how they could be right. And all these really smart people could be wrong. And so rather than trusting in their convictions and, the, and following the Holy Spirit's leading, they trusted in the majority. And then you'll also remember in the days of Jesus. I'm willing to bet that there were many people who saw the goodness of Jesus. They saw the power of His teachings. They saw the miracles that He was performing. And they believed that He was speaking the truth. But alas, as they looked around and they saw all of the religious leaders claiming that He was powered by the devil and that He was just out to deceive them, rather than following the Holy Spirit and the convictions of their heart, they were just too scared to believe something different from the majority. And the devil used that fact to eventually deceive them into shouting for the crucifixion of Christ. Well, I told you in the beginning of this series that you should expect that there are going to be times that you are going to be surprised. And I imagine that on Friday and Saturday night when we learned who the Antichrist was, that there are some of you that were in fact surprised. And I will just tell you that tonight's topic is another one of those that might catch you by surprise. And before we dive in though, I just want to remind you of a very important truth. What is popular is not always right. And what is right is not always popular. And this is evidenced by nothing less than the words of Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, which says that great serpent called the devil and Satan who what? Deceives the whole world. And it goes on to say in Revelation 13, verse 8, that all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. They will worship the beast... And they're actually worshiping the dragon because it's the dragon who gives the beast his power, his throne, and his authority. And so the Bible warns us, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 and 10, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And so the issue at the end of time is worship and so god calls on people everywhere in revelation 14 verse 7 to fear god and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth he calls on us to worship god who made heaven and earth because the fundamental difference between god and all false gods The fundamental difference between Christ and the dragon or the beast, the fundamental reason that God is worthy of our worship is because we are all created and He is the Creator. That's what makes Him worthy of worship. Revelation chapter 14 verse 11 says, You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. We are to worship Him because He is worthy 
of our worship. He's worthy to receive power and glory and honor because He created all things. That's why God is worthy of our worship. And so the call that we have given in the last days is to worship the Creator. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7 says, Fear God and worship Him who what? Made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Now right here, I'd like to pose to you a question. And that question is, does the Lord have anything to say in the Bible about when and how He wants us to worship Him? Remember, we don't want to worship the beast. We want to worship Him who made us. We want to worship the Creator. And so I ask you again, does the Bible say anything about what it means to worship God as our Creator? You might be interested to know that this verse in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, which basically calls for all humanity to worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, is nearly a direct quote of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So I ask you another question. Could it be in calling us to worship the Creator and not the beast that God is pointing us back to a forgotten commandment that where He specifically told us, remember as a testimony of His authority as our Creator. I'd like you to notice what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was what? Very good. And it goes on then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 to say, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended His work which He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which He had created and made. And so here we see that on the seventh day that God rested on it. Now, what does that mean? Did God get tired? Did God get worn out from all His creative work? I'd like you to notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? God doesn't get tired. God wasn't worn out from all of His creative work. But rather, God rested in the finished work of creation. Just like you do when you finish that project and you just sit back and admire the work that you have done. And so we learned that God rested on the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day. And He sanctified it. And so what does it mean that He sanctified it? Well, a very basic Bible definition is that He set it apart for a holy use. Right? He, he made it a very special day and God blessed it and He sanctified it. 
And He set it apart for a very special purpose. And one of those purposes is that the Sabbath day would be a memorial of creation. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20. That's going to be page 83 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles on your table. But notice what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And notice that the commandment specifically says to remember. Right? Remember the Sabbath day. And why are we to remember? Because in six days God created the heavens and the earth and man and everything on the earth. Here God blessed it. He set it apart. And as the seventh day of the week, a day to worship Him and to remember Him as the Creator. And so the Sabbath is a memorial of creation, just like your anniversary or the 4th of July. It is the day that He established to remember Him as the Creator. Well, what else does the Bible say about the Sabbath? Notice in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. God says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So God gave us the Sabbath not only as a sign of His power to create, but as a sign that He is the one who sanctifies or recreates us into His image through the plan of salvation. And so the Sabbath is also a reminder that God alone is the one who saves. We cannot save ourselves. The commandment says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. But can you and I keep anything holy in and of ourselves? No, we have a sinful nature. We can't do it, right? So the Sabbath is a reminder that any goodness that we desire to have has to come from God. We cannot get it from ourselves. He is the Lord who sanctifies us. And so the Bible calls us to worship Him who made heaven and earth and to worship Him in His divinely appointed way. And I say divinely appointed way because the Bible is full of failed attempts to worship God in a man-made way. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. You remember the story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. And both Cain and Abel both worshipped God. They both brought their sacrifice to God. But you'll remember that Abel brought the sacrifice that God had asked for. He brought the lamb, but Cain tried to weave in his own man-made element and he brought the fruit of the ground. And you'll remember that God rejected it. You also remember the story of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who held a worship service to accommodate the wishes of the wilderness congregation, and they erected a golden calf as a representative of the God who brought them out of Egypt. But you'll also remember that he and all of Israel were punished for their man-made worship. And then there's the story of a couple of young priests by the name of Nadab and Abihu. 
And God had told them that when they burned the incense on the altar that they were supposed to use the fire that God had lit. But they brought their own fire and the Bible says that they died for their rebellion. And so as we consider the importance of worshiping the Creator and not worshiping the beast in the last days, we must remember that we have to worship the Creator in the way that He has designed for us to worship Him. We must remember that His authority as our Creator is what ultimately determines the way we shape our lives. Jesus said, You worship Me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And so God is very specific and God is very particular how and when He wants us to worship Him. And so we have to look to the Word of God to answer this question. Which day is the Sabbath day? I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke is... In the New Testament, that's going to be page 1217 in your seminar Bible. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, third book of the New Testament. Luke chapter 23, and I want you to notice what it says starting in verse verse 50. The Dr. Luke says to us, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man, He had not consented to their decision indeed, that was to crucify Christ. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever been laid before. That day was the what? Preparation and the what? Sabbath drew near. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and saw how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared." Now, from these verses, we can see an order of events. The first thing that we see is that there was the preparation day. And we know that that is Friday. You can go back to the Old Testament and you can go to the book of Exodus and you can see that when God brought down manna from heaven, that He called that day before the Sabbath, He called it the preparation day because on that day they were supposed to go and get twice as much as they did every other day. And then the next day then would be the Sabbath, that is Saturday. And then Sunday is the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's really no question then about which day is the Sabbath day. But I'd like to point out something to you. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but a biblical day starts in the dark of the day. If you go back to creation, you will see that the Bible says that God created light in the first day, and then it was evening and morning the first day. It was evening and morning the second day, and so on. And so the day began in the dark, and then God created light. And so the Sabbath day begins on Friday at sundown, and goes till Saturday at sundown. 
In fact, the Sabbath in 108 languages of the world, the word for the seventh day of the week is Sabbath. And I've got a few examples here. In Greek, that word is sabaton. In Spanish, it's sabado. There in Italian, you see it's sabato. But all of them mean seventh day, which means Sabbath. Now, if you were to look into the dictionary, I find this to be very interesting. Notice what the dictionary defines the Sabbath day as. First, it says the seventh day of the week, Saturday, observed as the day of rest and worship by the Jews and some Christian sects. And then it gives an alternate definition, and it says that it's the first day of the week, Sunday, observed as the day of rest and worship by most Christians. But that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? It can't be both. It has to be one or the other. But remember, we don't want to let these outside sources determine what our theology is going to be, right? We have to let the Bible interpret itself. And this is really confusing, isn't it? Because you don't know which one it is. And so some people say, well, okay, the the Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week, but how do we know which day it is? Because hasn't the calendar been changed? And in fact, it was back in October of 1582. But I'd like you to notice that it was not the days that was changed. It was the date. It went Monday the 1st, Tuesday the 2nd, Wednesday the 3rd, Thursday the 4th, Friday the 15th. And so the days have never changed. And the reason that they did that is the same reason that we have what we call daylight savings time today. It was to make that adjustment. But the days themselves were never changed. And there's a really easy way for us to figure this out. Because the Jews, who have never accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah, have been keeping the Sabbath since the day the nation began. And unless every Jew slept in for one entire day and missed it, they've been keeping the Sabbath ever since. Well, did Jesus keep the Sabbath day? Turn with me here in Luke. Go back to chapter 4. Notice what this says. Chapter 4, verse 16. That's going to be page 1183 in your seminar Bible. Chapter 4, verse 16 says, So He, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where He had been brought up, and as His... What's that word? custom was he went into the synagogue on the sabbath day and stood up to read and so here we see that it was the habit of jesus to go to the synagogue and worship on the sabbath day now some people say yeah but jesus broke the sabbath didn't he because he didn't keep those uh, man-made standards that the pharisees and the religious leaders had set up for the sabbath In fact, you'll remember the story. There was one Sabbath day when Jesus and His disciples were walking through a grain field and some of the disciples reached down and plucked some of the heads of the grain and shucked them in their hand and began to eat the grain. And the Pharisees got upset and they said to Jesus, why are your disciples breaking the Sabbath? Because they considered that work, right? And do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? 
And so, in other words, what Jesus was saying is that if you consider plucking a few heads of grain off the plant or pulling an apple off the tree because you're hungry to be work, then that is a distortion of the blessing that God intended the Sabbath day to be. The Pharisees also gave him a hard time because he was healing people on the Sabbath day. You remember that? And it's a practice that he gives to us as a vital principle when it comes to observing the Sabbath. Notice what he said in Matthew 12, 12. He said to them, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so Jesus made it clear that it is okay to help someone who has an illness on the Sabbath day or to rescue someone in an emergency. And by doing that, you are not only not violating the law, but he says it is lawful to do so. You are completely and fully within the law to help someone on the Sabbath day. And then there are others that believe, well, the only reason that Jesus kept the Sabbath day is because he was a Jew. Ever heard someone say something like that? Yeah, but let me remind you of a couple of things. First of all, I want to remind you that the Sabbath was set apart at creation. Not only long before there was a Jew, but even before sin entered into the world. And so the Sabbath was a part of God's perfect plan for humanity. Not something that was given specifically to the Jews. And then there are some people that feel that because God addresses the children of Israel when He gives them the Ten Commandments, that they're only for the Jews. Do you believe that? It's only a sin for a Jew to commit adultery. It's only a sin for a Jew to steal. Do you believe that? No, of course we don't believe that. And then, uh, even today, all Christians, every Christian on this planet, believes that we are a recipient of the New Covenant. You remember the New Covenant? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 tells us that God is going to write His law in your mind and in your heart. Now, do you believe that that's for everyone? And yet, if you go back to the Old Testament, you will see that that New Covenant promise was addressed to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So do you think that that's only for the Jews? No, of course not. And Jesus makes it absolutely perfectly clear in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, when He says the Sabbath was made for the Jews. Is that what He said? No, He said the Sabbath was made for man. He included all of us in that, right? And apparently Jesus gave no indication that the Sabbath was no longer going to be valid after His death. Because in Luke 23, verse 56, one of those verses we just read, and those faithful lady disciples, they would not go and anoint His body, but I quote, they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. And so apparently Jesus hadn't given any indication whatsoever that the Sabbath was no longer going to be applicable or valid after His death. So what about the apostles? Did they worship on the Sabbath day? 
I'd like you to notice what it says in Acts 17, verse 1. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his what? Custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And so here we see that Paul, like Christ, also had a habit of worshiping on the Sabbath day. Acts chapter 16, verse 13 says, And on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And that verse goes on, and I'll read the rest of it in a minute, but I just want to point out to you that there were some cities where there were Christians where they didn't have a synagogue. And when that happened, the people would typically go somewhere out into nature, and normally it would be somewhere down by the river because it would be greener, it would be lush, it would be more of the creation of God to see. And here we see that on the Sabbath day in this particular city, they didn't have a synagogue. So Paul went down by the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Here it says in Acts 18 verse 4, And he, that is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and Greeks. And so Paul held 84 meetings on the Sabbath in the book of Acts. Well then some people say, well, did the Gentile believers keep the Sabbath? I'd like you to look with me in Acts chapter 13. That's going to be page 1270 of your seminar Bible. And notice what it says in verse 14. Acts 13, verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And then it goes into this dissertation of everything that was going on there. And then go down to verse 42 and notice what it says. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. And so here is the opportunity. As these Gentiles and these Jews are coming out of the synagogue, and they say to Paul, They wanted him to speak to them again on the next Sabbath. Here was the perfect opportunity for Paul to say, no, that's okay. We don't need to wait until next Sabbath. We're going to start worshiping on Sunday. So you just come back tomorrow and we will have a service. That was the perfect opportunity for Paul to do that. But notice that he didn't do that. It says that on the next Sabbath, he reasoned with the whole city. Both Jews and Gentiles came together. And the King James and the New King James make it very clear that it was the Jews and the Gentiles that came out of that synagogue and it was the Gentiles that asked Him to meet with them the following Sabbath. And so that was the perfect opportunity for Paul to show them, no, we've changed the day we worship. But he didn't do it. Now, something that really strikes me as interesting is the question, did Jesus expect future believers to keep the Sabbath? You remember that we talked about the time 
when the disciples came to Jesus, pointing out the temple, and Jesus said to them, not one stone is going to be left upon another. You remember that story? And then when they went out onto the Mount of Olives, Jesus sat down and they came to him and they said, tell us when these things will be. What is going to be the end of the world and the signs of your coming? And in their mind, if the temple was going to be destroyed, that was the end of the world. So they thought they were asking a single question. But Jesus, knowing that in 70 AD the temple was going to be destroyed, took those two time periods, 70 AD and the end of the world, and he blended them beautifully together, and he gave them a prophecy that uh, would cover either 70 AD or the end of the world. In either case, it was clearly in both cases that Jesus uh, had died and crucified before 70 AD and before the end of the world. And yet the Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, Jesus said, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or what? On the Sabbath. And so Jesus expected his believers to be observing the Sabbath in 70 A.D. and at the end of time. You know, I ask you to give me another explanation of that. I've heard other explanations, but I haven't heard a good one. The only thing that we can conclude from that verse is that Jesus was expecting his believers in both 70 A.D. and at the end of time to be keeping the Sabbath. But the real question that rests on the minds of many is, what difference does a day make, right? Well, I've shared this understanding with a lot of people, and I've had a lot of people say to me, Pastor, I worship God every day. And I say to them, praise God, so do I. You should worship God every day, right? But what day has God called us to come together corporately and worship Him? And so when you come to that question, does a day really matter? Let me just say this to you. That question is not answered by me. That question cannot be answered by you. That question can only be answered by the commandment of God. And I can't take that away from you. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 20. It's going to be page 83 in your seminar Bible, second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20, and notice what it says starting in verse 10. I'm going to give just a second here because I still see some pages turning. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 10 says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And so clearly God is the one who is telling us, Does a day make a difference? Yes, it makes a difference to God. God said the seventh day is to be the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, let me give you something that I hope will help us to understand this. If I said to you, I'd like you to go over into that closet right there and grab me a chair, what would you do? Well, you'd go over there and you'd open those doors and you'd find a whole bunch of chairs there and you would probably just grab me the first chair you saw, right? Because I said, get a chair. But if I then said to you, go over there in that closet and get me the chair, what would you say? You'd say, which chair is the chair, right? Because the word the is identifying a very specific article, isn't it? Just like God set apart the seventh day 
for us to show our loyalty to Him. The Sabbath commandment is different than all of the other commandments in this one respect. It requires us to trust and obey God even though we might not see any reason to do so. In that respect, it is much like the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve may have thought, what's the big deal? It's only a piece of fruit. I don't see any difference between this tree and that tree. But in spite of her rationalization, she disobeyed the express command of God and all of humanity has been paying for it ever since. And so you may say, what's the big deal? I go to church on Sunday, but it's still one day in seven. I don't see anything immoral with that. But friends, the big deal is the commandment of God specifically says, remember the seventh day and keep it holy. And so the Sabbath, to a great extent, becomes a test of loyalty just like the forbidden fruit. And you'll remember that last night we read in James chapter 2, verse 10, that James said, if you keep the whole law, but you fail in one point, you've what? You've failed in it all, right? Now let me try to illustrate this in a story. There was a farmer who was getting up there in age. And he and his wife were considering retiring. And so they went to their one and only son, who was uh, an adult, but he was in college. In fact, he was going to agricultural school because he wanted to be a farmer just like his father. And so the farmer went to his son. And he said, son, your mother and I are considering retiring. We have been tied to this farm our whole life, and we want to see what retirement's going to be like, so we're going to take a vacation. And it's not going to be just a week-long vacation. We want to go for a couple of months, because we want to see if we're going to be able to handle just doing nothing, right? And so he says to his son, I want to make an agreement with you. I'll tell you what, if you do exactly what I tell you to do when I retire... I'm going to give you the farm. And the son said, wow, that's exactly what I've been hoping for. I've been going to school. I've been trying to learn. I want to be a farmer just like you. Dad, you can count on me. You just tell me what to do and I'll take care of it. And so the farmer says to his son, all right, let's go out. And they went out to the fields. And that farmer had 10 fields. And he took his son to the first field and he said, son, I want you to plant beans in this field. And then he went to the second field and he said, I want you to plant corn in this field. And he went all the way down through the fields until he got to the 10th field and he said, I want you to plant potatoes here. And the son said, okay, dad, I got it. You can count on me. You and mom go and enjoy that vacation and I will see you in a couple of months when it's harvest time. And so the farmer and his wife left on vacation. And you know, that son, he was pretty smart. He was going to agricultural college, right? And he had learned in school that if you wanted to know exactly what to plant in a field, you take a soil sample and it will tell you exactly what to plant. And so that's what he did. He took soil samples from all of the fields. He took them into the school. And when the results came back to that first field, it said it would be perfect for beans. And so he went and he planted beans. 
He went to the second field and the result said it would be perfect for corn. And he says, man, how did dad know this? This is perfect for corn. And so, guess what? He planted corn. And he went right down the fields until he got to the 10th field. And the test result said that it would be better for tomatoes. And so, guess what he did? He planted tomatoes. And then the father came back from his vacation. He's driving up to the house. He's looking at all the fields. He's going, wow, this is amazing. He goes and he finds his son and he says, son, let's go look at the fields. And they go to that first field and man, those beans look good. He went to that second field and man, that corn was 10 feet high. He was like, wow, this is really amazing. They went all the way down to the fields and they came to that 10 field and he said, son, where are the potatoes? And he said, dad, I... I uh, took some soil samples and I went and it said that it would be better for tomatoes. And so I planted them and look at them. They're perfect and they're huge. They're beautiful. And the father said to the son, son, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to give you the farm because you did not do what I told you to do. You see, friends, let me let me ask you a question. What percent obedient do you think that the son was? I'm hearing some different answers. I heard somebody say 90%. Let me say this to you. That son was 0% obedient. Yes. Because if that first field would have said that it was better for something else, you have to believe he would have planted something else. So that son was 0% obedient. Now I'd like you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. You're in Exodus. Just go one book to the right. Leviticus 23 that's going to be page 138 in your seminar bible and i'd like you to notice what it says here in leviticus 23 verse 3 leviticus chapter 23 verse 3 says six days shall work be done but the seventh day is the sabbath of solemn rest a what A holy convocation. Now we know what holy is. That means sacred, right? And a convocation is an assembly. This is a holy assembly. This is where God is telling us, I want you to come together and corporately worship me on the seventh day. On the Sabbath. Now, can you and I make a day holy? No, we can't create a day. And so therefore, we can't make a day holy. And so if we arbitrarily pick a day that we want to corporately worship God on, then I ask you the question, who are we really worshiping? But there's another question. And that question is, how did Sunday begin to be observed by most of the Christian world as the day of corporate worship well did the apostles change it i'd like you to notice that there are eight places in the new testament how many did i say eight eight places only in the new testament where it talks about the first day of the week and five of those are just simply talking about it being the day of resurrection i'm not going to go to all five of those but i want to look at one of them with you turn with me to mark chapter 16 Mark chapter 16, that's page 1175. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 1 and 2. 
The Bible says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the what? First day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, I told you that this was talking about the first day of the week, right? But I also told you that it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'd like to point out to you here in chapter 16, look with me at verse 9. The Bible says, Now when He, that is Jesus, rose early on the what? first day of the week. So here the Bible itself tells us that Jesus rose on the first day of the week, right? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, there are five places that talk about that. And the sixth place, I'm not going to take you there. I'll just give you the verse. It's John chapter 20, verse 19. And you'll remember that in this verse, it's where Jesus first appeared to his disciples who had gathered together in the upper room. And so then people look at that verse and they say, see, the disciples gathered together on the first day of the week in the upper room. This was a worship service. But I want to remind you of something. If you go back to John chapter 20 in verse 19 and you look at that entire story, what you'll see is that the reason that they were gathered together was fear of the Jews. So it wasn't that they were gathering together for a worship service. It was that they were in hiding. They were thinking that the uh, religious leaders were coming after them and they were going to do the same thing to them that they did to Jesus. And so this was not a worship service. Now there are two other places in the Bible that talk about the first day of the week. And I'd like to show you those. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 is going to be page 1280 in your seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 7 and 8. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to do what? To break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And so there are people that say, See, the disciples were gathered together with Paul on the first day of the week and they had a worship service because we see here that they're taking communion, right? They're breaking bread. But I would like to point out to you that in Acts chapter 2, verse, I think it's, yeah, verse 46, that it says that the disciples went from house to house and broke bread daily. So does that mean that they were creating a new Sabbath day every day of the week? Of course not. There is nothing in that text that says anything about changing the law of God from the seventh day that was set apart at creation to the first day of the week. All it says is that they got together on a Sunday before Paul was about to leave. He was giving them his last minute instructions. And if you go into that story, you'll see that Paul preached late into the night. And, you know, I get accused of being a long-winded preacher sometimes too. And the real interesting part of the story is that there was a young man by the name of Eutychus who was sitting in the window and he fell asleep and he fell out and he died. And then God raised him from the dead through Paul. And I believe that that's really the reason that the story is even in the Bible. 
to see the power of God working. That's what that was about, not that that was a worship service. Now let's look at the last one. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. That's going to be page 1325 of that seminar Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And notice what it says in verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the what? First day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And so there are people that look at this verse and they say, see, they're having a worship service because they were taking an offering. But do you see anything there that looks like passing a plate or anything like that? No. What we see here is that Paul is giving instructions. And he says that I want you on the first day of the week to take some money and set it aside. And why is Paul doing that? Because if you understood the economy of the Jews at that time, you would realize that they got paid on Friday, the last day of the work week. They rested on the Sabbath. And then Sunday, the first day of the week, was their time to get their financial house in order. And the first thing that they would do from their paycheck is take their tithes and offerings out, right? And so he says, take some money and set it aside. And keep doing that every week so that when I come back, we're going to take all of that and that will be a gift that will go to Jerusalem. Just imagine if I said to you right now, oh, we're going to take an offering. Well, you might have a couple bucks in your wallet and you might pull them out and put them in a plate, right? But if I said to you, we're going to take an offering in four weeks and I want you to start setting money aside. Now what you're doing is you're getting more money saved up. So when we come back in four weeks, now we're going to have a bigger amount that we're going to do, right? And that's exactly what Paul was describing to them. And so clearly this was not a worship service. This was simply laying money aside so that it could be all added up later and then taken to Jerusalem. What Paul is really saying here is the same thing that the Old Testament said. And that is that you should give God your first fruits. Right? On the first day of the week, set something aside. There is absolutely nothing in that verse that is talking about a worship service or that talks about the change of the fourth commandment or talks about the law of God or anything else. There's nothing in that verse at all. In fact, if you look at how few places in the new testament talk about the first day of the week and what the disciples were doing and you compare that to how the multitude of days it talks about the sabbath and what they were doing there's really no question about it if god was going to change his law he would certainly have not done it in such an obscure and discreet way that we would have to guess and search and speculate what he meant This is the Ten Commandment law written by the finger of God in stone, indicating that it was to be forever. The Sabbath was something that He put in place at creation, signifying that it was a part of His perfect plan for humanity. 
And so then people say, well, wasn't the corporate day of worship changed in honor of the resurrection? A lot of people say that one. And the reason that they say that is because you, know, you want to know where they find that in the Bible? There is nowhere. There is nowhere in the Bible that says that the corporate day of worship has been changed. If we are going to worship God on a day other than the one that He prescribed simply because it's a special day, then I would say, well, then why don't we worship on Friday? Because that's the day He died for us, right? But the Bible says nothing about Sunday being the day that we are to corporately worship God in honor of the resurrection. In fact, the Bible, in talking about the uh, resurrection of Jesus, you know what is symbolized in the Bible by that? That's right, I heard somebody say it. Baptism. Okay? And then if you look in Romans chapter 6, the Bible gives the ordinance of baptism as a symbol of of death and resurrection. Nothing in the Bible says that the first day of the week should be a symbol of His resurrection. That is something that comes from somewhere else. So then people say, well, doesn't the Bible call Sunday the Lord's Day? Well, let's see where they get that from. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, last book of the Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 9 and 10. Revelation 1, 9 and 10. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the what? On the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And so... This calls the seventh day the Lord's Day, right? So that makes the Sabbath the Lord's Day. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13 says, God calls the Sabbath my holy day. That makes the Sabbath the Lord's Day. Notice what it says in Mark 2, verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the what? Lord of the Sabbath. That makes the Sabbath the Lord's day. So if Jesus didn't change it, and His disciples didn't change it, then why are there so many Christians today who are corporately worshiping on Sunday instead of the seventh day Sabbath of the fourth commandment? Well, what was it that we learned last night? that the little horn of Bible prophecy, who we saw as the Roman papacy, would think to change times, plural, and law. Right? Now, I want to point out to you that the book of Daniel is written in one place in Hebrew and in other places in Aramaic. And here in Daniel chapter 7, it's in Aramaic. And there are two words in Aramaic in the Bible that are translated into the word times. And that first word in the Aramaic language is the word idin. 
And it's in that sentence that we read the other night that talks about time, times, and half a time. And then the other word is zaman, which is used in its plural form here in times. The word idin means span of time, but the word zaman is more of a function of a point in time. And in the plural form as it is here, found in verse 25, it refers to repeated points of time. In other words, the weekly Sabbath, right? The context of the passage connects these repeated points in times to God's law, referring directly to the fourth commandment as a regularly occurring point in time. Now, when the apostles died, the early church was doing all that they could do to do two things. First, to reach the pagan world around them, And number two, at the same time, trying to maintain the purity of the doctrine of the church. And over time, though, error began to creep into the church. And for one thing, they started looking, the Christians started looking at the Jews in a very negative way. And they started trying to disassociate themselves with the Jews. And so there were many people who began to accommodate the worshiping on Sunday because they were also at the same time trying to win the pagans. And the pagans were already used to worshiping their gods on Sunday. They worshiped the sun on which day of the week, you think? Sunday, right? And as they began to accommodate, then they put as their reason the resurrection. And that kind of thing has happened throughout history. Think about Christmas for a minute. I'm going to tell you, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, right? In fact, you know where that holiday started? It started in the pagan festivals because they would worship the sun in the winter solstice. That's when the sun began to be stronger and the days were getting longer. But then they were trying to bring the Christians together and they just said, well, why don't you guys just celebrate Jesus' birth on the same day? And then there's the same problem with Easter. Easter is not about the resurrection of Christ. It's about worshiping the goddess of Estar, the goddess of fertility. And that's why you always see lots of bunnies, because they multiply quickly, don't they? They're very fertile. Yeah, absolutely. And so then they brought the Christians and the pagans together, and there was this mixing of truth and error. And I'll I'll just tell you this. We have got to give Satan a lot of credit. He is brilliant. Because if you want to deceive God's people at the end of time, how do you do it? You bring a little bit of error in with truth over thousands of years, and pretty soon it's being taught as truth. Now, I'll just tell you this. I don't have a lot of problem with people celebrating Jesus' birth and His resurrection. I want to celebrate those things too. I just happen to know that those are pagan holidays, right? And so I don't look at that part of it. But when it comes to changing God's law and changing the day that He wants us to corporately worship on, then I have a problem. 
And it wasn't long before the Roman Emperor Constantine put something into law. Now, history says that Constantine was converted to Christianity. But there are really essentially two ways to be converted. One is the way that the Bible describes, and that's by having that born-again experience. When the Spirit of God comes in you, when the law of God is written in your mind, in your heart, right? And then there's being converted to Christianity for political expediency. And that's exactly what the case was for Constantine. He was seeing that the Christians were increasing, and he was trying to bring the Christians and the pagans together And he was doing everything that he can to accommodate both of them. And the history says that he even took his army and had them march through the river. And he told them they were all baptized. And I don't know about you, but I think it takes a little bit more preparation than that, right? First of all, you have to give your heart to Jesus. Because if you haven't done that, you go down into that watery grave as a a dry rebel and you come out a wet one, right? Nothing has changed. And so there's got to be a little bit more to it than that. But notice what Constantine put into law. And it tells us that in History of the Christian Church, page 380. On the venerable day of the what? Sun. In fact, the history books also tell us that Constantine was the head of pagan worship at that time. And so now he's trying to bring the pagans and the Christians together. And he says, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed. And so here, uh, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, is telling everybody, we're all going to come together and we're all going to rest on Sunday. We're all going to worship on that day. Because that's what the pagans were already doing. And he's trying to bring them all together. But I would like you to notice something very important in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Now, I want you to remember what we talked about already. The dragon symbols Satan, but remember that Satan always works through human instrumentalities, right? And so the dragon also represents pagan Rome. And when Constantine left, he immediately gave his seat to the Pope. But notice what the Catholic Encyclopedia says In volume 4, page 153, the church, that's the Roman church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath or the seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. Now, I want to point out a couple of things to you. First of all, let me go back and point out to you that it is the Catholic church themselves that say they are the ones that change the day. Did you catch that? And then notice what it also says here, that they made the third commandment refer to Sunday. Now I want to ask you, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, when we see the Ten Commandments, what commandment is the Sabbath commandment? The fourth commandment, but they call it here the third commandment. Why do they do that? Remember what we read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, that the Antichrist who we identified as the papacy, would seek to change times and law, right? Well, we already saw that that times represented the repeated points in times of the seventh-day Sabbath. But what is this changing of the law? I'd like you to notice here a comparison between the Ten Commandments of the Bible here on the left 
and the Ten Commandments according to the Catholic Church. And I want to thank David for sending this to me the other night because this is awesome. Notice, I don't know if you can see that in the back. It's kind of hard to see. But notice the first commandment says in the Bible, you shall have no other gods before me. Is that right? Notice what the Catholic Church says the first commandment is. I am the Lord your God. You shall not have any strange gods before me. Okay, well that's a little bit different, but we might be able to swallow that, right? But notice this. The second commandment in the Bible says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You recognize that, don't you? Now notice the second commandment over here that the Catholic Church says in their uh, catechism. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Whoa, hold on a minute. That's the third commandment in the, in the Bible, right? So what happened to the second commandment? They took it out. They took it out. And you want to know why they took it out? They had to. Because they are continuously bowing down, praying to Mary, and worshiping idols. In fact, if you go right out to Ashman Street here and go five blocks down, there's a Catholic church there, and you'll see a statue of Mary lifted up about four feet high, and then down in front of her, there are three statues of people praying to Mary. They had to take that commandment out. But there still needed to be ten, right? So notice what they did. In the Bible, the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness. And the tenth is you shall not covet. But over here, the ninth is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And the tenth is you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. They took the tenth commandment and they split it in two and made it nine and ten. Oh, friends. History has validated the Bible. Notice this out of the Catholic book, The Convert's Catechism of Catholic Doctrine. If you go home and you have a catechism, you go look in there and you'll see they took that second commandment out. But notice in their trying to educate their people, notice what they say in this Catholic doctrine. They ask the question, which is the Sabbath day? They answer the question, Saturday is the Sabbath day. They ask another question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Sabbath? Answer, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity, that's the holiness, from Saturday to Sunday. Friends, can man change God's holy day? Absolutely not. And then there's the Council of Trent. We've talked about this already. Remember, there were two main purposes for that council. One was to come up with some theology to counter the Reformation, which said that they were the papacy. And the second was to determine which had priority, tradition or the Bible. And notice what they said in Faith of Our Fathers by Cardinal James Gibbons. He says, this is a Catholic document. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The Scripture enforces the religious observance of Saturday. Why are they saying this? He's saying this because they want you to understand the reason that they keep Sunday instead of Saturday. And they're telling you that the reason that you keep Sunday is because the Catholic Church changed it, not because the Bible says so. And so all we are doing 
by corporately worshiping on Sunday is paying homage to the Catholic Church and we should just all become Catholic again. Over and over they make these statements. Notice what this question box, this is a Catholic document, says on page 99. In keeping Sunday, non-Catholics are simply following the practice of the Catholic Church for 1,800 years. A tradition and not a Bible ordinance. They're saying, hey, you Protestants, you claim to go by the Bible and the Bible only. But you're holding tradition over the Bible. You're keeping Sunday one of our traditions. And so you should just come back to the mother church. Come on home. Canon and Tradition, page 263. Finally, at the last opening on the 18th of January, 1562, all hesitation was set aside. The Archbishop of Reggio made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above Scripture. They said the authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of the Scriptures because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by a command of Christ, but by its own authority. Here's something from the history of the Council of Trent in 1676. The Archbishop of Reggio said that the church had as much authority as the Word of God. That the church had changed the Sabbath, ordained by God, into Sunday, not by the preaching of Christ, but by the authority of the church. I'd like you to notice this from the Augsburg Confession, Article 28. The, the, the Roman church is telling the bishops and the priests or pastors to refer to the Sabbath day as having been changed into the Lord's day contrary to the Decalogue. That's the Ten Commandments. As it seems, neither is there any example whereof they make more than concerning the changing of the Sabbath day. Great, say they, is the power of the church since it has dispensed with one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 15, 3. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? A few verses later in verse 9, He said, In vain they do worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, the Sabbath was kept from Adam to Moses. It was kept from Moses to Jesus. It was kept by those faithful disciples, especially those lady disciples who would not go and anoint the body of Jesus, but they rested on the Sabbath day. Jesus said that He was expecting us to keep the Sabbath in 70 A.D. and at the end of time. He said, pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. And beyond all of that, if you go to Isaiah chapter 66, this is talking about the new earth. It says in verse 23, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Did you know that? We are going to be worshiping God on the Sabbath day for all of eternity. Jesus has one word for us. Remember. Why did He say remember? We have to conclude that He knew that humanity would forget. He knew that during that 1,260 years of papal reign that the truth would be cast to the ground. And so He knew that we were going to need to be reminded 
to keep the Sabbath day holy. Friends, you're free to agree or disagree with this. You're free to ask any sincere questions that you might have. No one here is going to dodge your questions. If we don't know the answer, we'll dig into it with you. But you owe it to yourself to keep coming. There are more pieces of the prophetic puzzle that you don't want to miss. And there are more surprises around the corner. And if you decide, after seeing all of the things that I'm showing you, that you do not believe it, that you do not want to keep the commandments of God, that you want to continue on the way that you're going, I just tell you this, I'm going to love you anyway. My desire is for us to discover the truth from the Bible for ourselves. That we would look at the weight of evidence and we would come to all of our conclusions based on the Bible. And my desire is that you would discover that weight of evidence for yourself. Prophecy clearly points to a time when there would be a changing of the law. It clearly pointed to the little horn, the papal power being the one who would seek to change times and law. Friends, history has validated the Bible. Put your trust in the Word of God. Jesus is, has just one word for us. Remember. Now, you may have a text that you feel says something different. And there are verses in the Bible that say something different. You had one of those questions in your question time tonight. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. It talks about the Sabbaths. What's that talking about? There's one in Romans chapter 14 that talks about don't let anybody tell you what to eat or drink or, or what day to worship. What is that all about? But remember... We've got to look at the weight of evidence and then we've got to take that one or two or three obscure verses and then we've got to try and align them up with the weight of evidence. And if we can do that, then we can be pretty certain that we have the correct interpretation. Now, let me just say this to you. It's one thing to hear some pretty heavy truths about the Bible like we heard on Friday and Saturday night. But then when it comes to something like this topic tonight that could change your life, I'm going to tell you what happens. People start looking for excuses. And they will usually go to someone who is going to tell them what they want to hear. But remember, if you go and talk to someone about what you've been learning here, they might just tell you, oh, you don't need to do that. Don't worry about it. But remember... They have not seen the weight of evidence that you have seen. But what's more important to you? Keeping the commandments of God or staying in your comfort zone? Look, friends, Jesus says count the cost. It's going to cost you something, right? And I'm going to tell you, no one understands that more than I do. Let me tell you my own experience. I was pastoring a non-denominational church. I pastored that church for six years. And then I discovered this truth. And I had a choice to make. Was I going to follow the truth? Or was I going to stay where I was in my comfort zone and try and keep my job? 
Well, I'll just tell you. I went back to my church and I tried to show them from the Bible the truth. But they refused. And I lost my job. But that's okay. Because God will honor you if you honor Him. God wants you to follow the truth. God wants you to avoid this deception that is going on right now. And so I ask you, what's more important to you? The truth and eternity? Or just staying where you're at? Doing whatever you're doing? I'm going to leave that question to you. I want you to pray about that. And as we leave here tonight, ask the Lord what He would have you do. Let's pray. Oh, loving Father, Lord, I imagine right now that there are heads that are spinning and people are just trying to figure out what all of this means to them and how it's going to affect their lives. Lord, it's one thing to find out truth, but when you find out truth that's going to change your life, now it, we're going to take a step backwards. And Lord, I just pray that as we do, we would surrender our heart to You. And I pray, Lord, for every person here that we would keep coming. There's more truth to be seen. And Lord, You are preparing a people, that remnant group of Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Lord, we want to be among that group. And so we pray that You'd give us the strength and the courage to do what You would have us do no matter what the cost. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.